to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman, a practicing physician and CMIO, and the host of CMIO Podcast. Today, I'm covering the news to know for the week of October 14th, and there's been a bunch of good stories. Our government is hard at work here, so... Let's jump into it, and starting from an article that's on the CMS.gov website, it's Modernizing and Clarifying the Physician Self-Referral Regulations Proposed Rule. So on October 9th, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services issued a proposed rule to modernize the Stark Law. This has not been significantly updated since it was enacted in 1989. The proposed rule supports the CMS Patients Over Paperwork Initiative by reducing unnecessary regulatory burden on physicians and other healthcare providers while reinforcing the Stark Law's goal of protecting patients from unnecessary services and being steered to less convenient, lower quality, or more expensive services because of a physician's financial self-interest. So I'll read you another couple of paragraphs here. Most of you already know what the Stark Law is. Uh, the background here, healthcare was paid for primarily on a fee-for-service basis when the Stark Law came out. The law rightly recognized that a profit motive could influence some physicians to order services based on their financial self-interest rather than the good of the patient. The situations that our government was worried about back in those days was that an orthopedic surgeon might also own a physical therapy center and would be referring patients to that physical therapy center because of their own financial interest rather than what's in the best interest of the patients. And so that's where the Stark Law came about. And it has some very nasty penalties in it. All right, reading back to the article here. Since then, Medicare and the private market have implemented many value-based healthcare delivery and payment systems to address unsustainable cost growth in the current volume-based system. A value-based system pays based on quality of patient care rather than the volume of services provided, and the Stark Law has not evolved to keep pace with the transition. In its current form, the Stark Law may prohibit some arrangements that are designed to enhance care coordination, improve quality, and reduce waste. The proposed rule would create new permanent exceptions to the Stark Law for value-based arrangements. The proposed rule would unleash innovation by permitting physicians and other healthcare providers to design and enter into value-based arrangements without fear that legitimate activities to coordinate improved care and lower costs would violate the Stark Law. The exceptions would apply regardless of whether the arrangement relates to care furnished to people with Medicare or other patients. However, this is not burden-free. I found in a, a different article something that says that the proposed rule would require healthcare entities to provide a written document to the government that details the arrangements between them and the specific patient population that they're going to target and figure out what outcomes they're going to measure. And those outcomes will be monitored to ensure that the value-based arrangement doesn't violate the law. My take on this, CMIOs are going to want to watch this at a minimum and even consider commenting. This is a proposed rule, so there's certainly opportunity to put in your two cents. Stark violations are nasty, and you don't want to run afoul of these things, so you want to be careful with how you're moving forward. 
I just read to you that the outcomes will be monitored to ensure value-based arrangement doesn't violate the law. But what does that mean? If our interventions fail, as many of them do in value-based care, does that mean we're violating the law? So I'm concerned about the proposed rule that it creates some confusion, but it is certainly a step in the right direction. And with some clarification, I think it could be really valuable for value-based care. There's another article about this uh, proposed rule. This one comes out of healthitsecurity.com. And the title is HHS Stark Law Proposal Permits Cybersecurity Donations to Providers. So I won't go into the details that kind of repeat in this article what was said in the other article about, yeah, this is for value-based care. But the latest proposal would help hospitals improve its cybersecurity posture as well as those of nearby providers that work frequently with the provider. By providing a safe harbor for those that donate cybersecurity software to each physician who refers patients to its hospital, the proposed rule would add a new safe harbor and amend the existing safe harbors for electronic health record arrangements, warranties, local transportation, and personal services and management contracts, according to the proposal. To HHS, cybersecurity technology is inherently valuable in terms of costs avoided, overhead avoided, and administrative expenses. While these costs and services are highly variable, the proposed safe harbor would minimize inherent risks between referral sources while promoting increased security for interconnected and interoperable health IT systems. HHS wants feedback on whether we should consider cybersecurity items or services to only meet this defined term when such remuneration is donated and used in conjunction with health information technology that meets the definition of coordination and management of care. So my take on this is that all of us want better alignment of our systems with the independent practices in our community. And for a variety of reasons, just simply purchasing those practices is not an option, but the data they have is critical for any decent population health program. So is cybersecurity a concern for any small business owner in a private practice? Yeah, absolutely it is. They probably do not put a lot of resources into it. It is just not where they're putting their dollars, they tend to put dollars into things that would generate more revenue. So if this rule moves forward, you will likely see these providers come knocking and they're gonna approach the CMIO as their primary point of contact between the, the clinicians and IT. So what's your strategy gonna be when they come knocking? Will you offer it to everyone? Just a select few? How are you gonna choose those few? Hopefully by having a well thought out policy that you have established in advance. Does it really make sense to offer support to that local plastic surgeon that does all of their work in their own ambulatory surgery center? Well, first glance, you may say no, but gee, what if your system's having some trouble getting call coverage in that specialty? And maybe there is some interest now in that plastic surgeon and how you could include them in the care coordination uh, in the community. So interesting opportunity if this moves forward definitely watch this one the ability to help with the cybersecurity probably the weakest link in your data safety is going to be the community providers and if they have access to your data or you're or you're getting data from them you probably do want to have some security parts in place 
Next, from our government, again, this one actually, the article's in Fierce Healthcare by Joanne Finnegan, October 10th, and it's HHS offers guide to help clinicians taper patients off opioids. See, and you thought our government wasn't doing any work there in Washington. Look at all the stuff they're producing for the news this week. So, HHS does not recommend opioids be tapered rapidly or discontinued suddenly due to significant risks of opioid withdrawal unless there is a life-threatening issue confronting the individual patient. The guide, which was compiled from published guidelines and practices endorsed in the peer-reviewed literature, covers issues clinicians should consider when changing a patient's chronic pain therapy. It lists issues to consider prior to making a change, which includes shared decision-making with the patient, issues to consider when initiating the change, and issues to consider as a patient's dosage is being tapered, including the need to treat symptoms of opioid withdrawal and provide behavioral health support. So I took a look at the guide, and I think it's really useful. Having some help with the taper is valuable information. I think it's worth a look for you to review it. Just Google hhs.gov opioid taper, and you'll find it as either the number one or number two item. As CMIOs, think about how to develop clinical decision support with this. I think providers will really appreciate your efforts on that. You probably already have a section of your chart somewhere where the provider can click to launch the state prescription drug monitoring program. Perhaps put next to that a little link to the guideline. Or even better, do some math for the doc and suggest to them the correct tapering dose. The article is suggesting a 10% reduction per month for a slow taper and a 10% a week reduction for a rapid taper. And we should be able to build that in. That shouldn't be too hard for us. I know one of the more challenging days in my primary care career was when the pain clinic across town closed down. And the patients start calling and they're asking, what can you do for me? I don't want to go through withdrawal. And I don't want to see my patients hurt by this. It wasn't their fault. They didn't do anything wrong in this situation. But I don't feel comfortable prescribing the doses that were being used by the pain clinic. So I'm in a bad situation, as many of us have gotten into this situation. So having a tapering program to utilize is a really nice solution. I feel comfortable going to a patient and saying, I'm going to take over, but we have to taper you, and if you want me to be involved in it, this is the way it works. So I encourage you to think about how you can utilize this guide in your system. I think you'll really enjoy building the clinical decision support to help our providers around this very tough issue. All right, I'm jumping to our next article. And the next article comes out of Healthcare IT News. It's written by Mike Milliard. Amazon Web Services says Amazon Textract, that's T-E-X-T-R-A-C-T, -T, is now HIPAA eligible. So another big move aimed at healthcare clients, Amazon Web Services revealed this week that a Textract machine learning technology, which can help healthcare organizations more easily extract data from scanned documents, is now HIPAA eligible, joining half a dozen other cloud-based AI tools. I'll give you another quote from the article here. Amazon Textract analyzes virtually any type of document, such as patient information from an insurance claim or values from a table in a scanned medical chart without requiring customization or human intervention. Holy smokes. All right, going on with uh, the article here, another paragraph. Textract joins six other AI tools that are HIPAA eligible. That's Amazon Translate, which does language translation, Amazon Comprehend, which extracts insights from unstructured text, Amazon Transcribe, 
which does speech-to-text conversion, Amazon Polly, which goes the other way with text-into-speech, and Amazon SageMaker, which is managed machine learning service. One more is Amazon Recognition, that's spelled with a K, R-E-K-O-G-N-I-T-I-O-N, that's image and video analysis. My take on this, this is huge. The CMIOs know how much value is locked away in those scanned documents. Those echo reports that you get that come in as a fax from the system across town, you can now pull out the date of the study and the ejection fraction, and maybe we won't be repeating as many unnecessary echoes. Or how about that colonoscopy report with a recommendation for a follow-up in three years? Yeah, we could take that information, lift it off the scan document, update your health maintenance or whatever the tool is that you're using to keep track of when the next colonoscopy is due, all without human intervention. So perhaps we could even get these tools to be accurate enough to index and then file these scanned images into the correct spot in the chart without too much human intervention. Or maybe, I mean, do I even need this scanned-in document if we lifted all the good stuff off of it? That's really intriguing. So it's a bit risky when you start putting information into people's charts automatically without human intervention. So I'm not sure that everyone's comfort level is going to be there, but the concept is awesome. Scanned-in documents are a prime example of where healthcare is so far behind. So I was sitting in one of our offices the other day, and I heard the audible tone of a dial-up modem connecting with another device. Some of you millennials out there won't even know what that sound is, but for those of you who are born anywhere probably before 1980, understand that when you had your 300 baud modem on your Atari 800 uh, as a kid, you remember hearing the dial-up tone and the connection tones. And I still hear that in one of our offices today. It's horrid. Only in healthcare will you hear those modem connection devices. So anyway, is your health system utilizing the cloud, utilizing something like an Amazon Web Services to take advantage of these kinds of things? As CMIOs, you do need to know about these advances and be steering your health systems towards getting the data in the cloud. We cannot take advantage of these tools with the data sitting locked down on-prem. Just my two cents. Next article. Let's touch into telehealth. Out of Fierce Healthcare, Paige Meinmeyer, I think that's how you say it, October 10th, United Healthcare launches a new app with on-demand telemedicine. So tell you a little bit about what this app does. Using the app, a United Healthcare member can directly request and schedule a virtual visit instead of needing a separate login or having to jump into a separate application. Most United Healthcare members are covered for such visits. Uh, United Healthcare has covered telehealth visits since 2016, but consistent feedback from members and employers said that there was a need for easier navigation. Employers view virtual visits and telemedicine broadly as a key tool to manage costs and help workers avoid unnecessary trips to the emergency department. A recent survey from the National Business Group on Health found 51% of large employers are making additional virtual tools a top priority for 2020. The goal he said, this is someone from United Healthcare, is to ultimately build a one-stop shop dashboard that could host a variety of valuable data. So integration with wellness programs, claims data, and remote patient monitoring are likely on the horizon. All right, a couple points out of this article. So why did I highlight this? Number one, I like that statistic. Of 51% of large employers are making the additional virtual tools a top priority for 2020. It's not compelling enough for me to make significant changes in my behavior as a CMIO quite yet. Yes, 
employers and payers want to see more telehealth because they see it as a way to reduce payments to providers. From their standpoint, the patient gets the care they were seeking and the reimbursement rate for a telehealth visit costs them a fraction of what an emergency department or urgent care visit would cost. Also, the insurer has more control over who is conducting the visit if it's done on their system. Think of this as being a narrow network. They can, they can implement some steerage. They're going to contract with providers to deliver the telehealth services that can deliver care at a low cost for them. That's obviously that's their business model. And perhaps that is your health system and perhaps it's not. If you have a solid footing in value-based care, you may have the infrastructure in place to do this. If you're in fee-for-service, a significant portion of your revenue is coming from fee-for-service. Having United siphon off a piece of the low acuity visits, that's not much of a concern. Which brings me to point number two, that everyone has a telehealth app. And this is not tremendous news. Okay, another person has a telehealth app. So from a patient's perspective, they have United Healthcare app on their phone. They have your system's patient portal. They probably have the system across the street's patient portal. And they may even have an app from one of the third-party telehealth providers like an MD Live or Teladoc. Uh, which one do they click on when they want care? I see a lot of opportunity here for confusion. From a strategic standpoint, you have to decide if you want to stake a claim in the digital frontier or not here. Most health systems are just dipping their toes in the water and not making a real concerted effort with dedicated providers and dedicated marketing because the economics just do not make sense yet. At the moment, health systems do not care if the urinary tract infections and upper respiratory infections are treated outside of the system. There is no brand loyalty being established with the tool that helps patients treat low-level illnesses. It is a commodity. And that in and of itself is a bit of a disappointment. Another part of medicine that has deteriorated into a commodity and is not seen as having much value. It's going to be a race to the bottom to see who can provide the visit at the lowest cost without the focus being on quality. And so for that reason, I really don't get too worked up by seeing another entrant into the telehealth space. Nor do I get too worked up about things like minute clinics or other things that are siphoning off the low, easy stuff. It's just not a space that health systems really want to have the fight in. Now, if they start getting into chronic care management, we better pay attention. If they have a virtual CHF diabetes or Parkinson's clinic online, that's going to start to hit into areas that we do care about. And I don't see that happening in 2020 because they can't get the specialists. We can't get the specialists either. Everyone has a hard time recruiting these people. Good luck finding the neurologist that has free time to do extra work on the side for an insurance company or independent third party. If you have a neurologist that has free time on their schedule to do this, something's not right somewhere. So my two cents, it's interesting that United Healthcare is getting their own app that provides telehealth. I think we'll see other services come along with it whether they're going to do nurse triage or use a bot system, a chat bot, to provide that triage to steer patients to appropriate levels of care. I think that will come from United Healthcare as well and be a market mover. I just think the space is something we watch for now. I don't think we have to jump in. However, I want to be clear. I am not saying that we shouldn't be ignoring our digital experience that we provide for the patient, which brings me to the next article. Also out of Fierce Healthcare, 60% of younger patients will switch healthcare providers over a poor digital experience. This was a survey that was done by an independent research firm, Servada, and they surveyed 1,600 consumers who visited a doctor or hospital and paid a medical bill in the last 12 months. 
half of consumers say they're frustrated about the provider's lack of adoption of digital administrative processes such as online bill pay, access to insurance information, digital pre-appointment forms, or mobile and email bill delivery. 41% of patients said they would stop going to their health care provider over a poor digital experience. Notably, one in five patients already switched providers over a poor digital experience. 74% are still receiving medical bills via paper methods, the survey found. Younger healthcare consumers are significantly more frustrated, more likely to stop seeing providers, and more likely to write negative reviews based on bad digital experiences, according to the survey. Patients aged 18 to 24 are three times as likely to consider switching providers over a poor digital experience compared to those over the age of 65. They are also four times as likely to have already abandoned a provider due to a poor digital experience. Which makes sense to me, kind of intuitively. Those who have, they're older, they have more chronic disease, are going to have less desire to switch things up. They like the stability. Millennials, uh, may not. So um, another point in the article here that getting expected out-of-pocket cost information also is noted a pain point. Approximately 60% of consumers have tried to get out-of-pocket costs from providers ahead of care, but 51% didn't get it easily or accurately. So I know what you're thinking. It's those millennials again causing trouble for us. Yeah, but they're right. We should be providing the service, and if you aren't, why not? It's not because of a lack of demand. The barrier to entry on this is pretty low. If your EHR vendor does not provide this, and most do, you can get this from a third-party vendor fairly cheap, which is how you see these little independent clinics start doing it. Uh, you see little urgent cares that can do electronic bill pay. So if it's easy to do and you're going to lose business if you don't do it, well, this one is a no-brainer. Just do it. So CMIOs, we want to retain our patients. We should be helping to push our financial colleagues along for not doing some of these Items to provide easy digital interaction. Last article, I'm going to get into a little clinical article here. And this one I'm taking out of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy. This one came out recently. I'm sorry, I don't have the exact date. I think it was, in, I think it was October 7th. The study found urinary antigen testing underused in pneumonia patients. An analysis of almost 160,000 pneumonia patients in 170 U.S. hospitals indicates that urinary antigen testing is a practice recommended by national guidelines to allow for antibiotic de-escalation in patients with a community-acquired pneumonia, but it's not widely performed, researchers reported in clinical infectious disease. They were looking at uh, patients from 2010 through 2015. Among the 160,000 admissions, 15.5% had the testing performed, and that was 18.4% of ICU patients, 15.3% in non-ICU patients. Of patients initially treated with broad-spectrum antibiotics, most were still receiving broad-spectrum therapy three days later. But the urinary antigen-positive patients more often had coverage narrowed. That's 38% uh, versus 17% which was a p-value of 0 0.001. Uh, in addition, the duration of vancomycin, piptazo, and carbapenems were all shorter in response to a positive urinary antigen test. Hospital rate of urinary antigen test was strongly correlated with de-escalation following a positive test. Only three patients de-escalated after a positive urinary antigen test were subsequently admitted to the ICU. So my take on this, when I saw it, I 
didn't you recall seeing urinary antigen in our pneumonia order set? So I went and took a look, and, and it's not there. And it raises the question, well, what should be in that pneumonia order set? Turns out, on October 1st, in ATS Journal, the new pneumonia guidelines were released. They haven't been updated since 2007. And there is some guidance in there around testing for influenza, testing for Legionella, testing for pneumococcal uh, pneumonia, and it's worth a read. And then thinking about your order sets. I'm not going to go into too much details because I don't know quite yet what I'm going to do with mine, but I know I'm going to meet with our pulmonologist and infectious disease specialists, pull together the team and some hospitalists probably, and we'll look at what do we need to do to streamline the ordering for patients being admitted with severe pneumonia. So I hope you do the same thing. And I think that'll be our last article for the day. So uh, thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. I've been your host, Mark Weissman. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me at cmiopodcast at gmail.com or go to the website at cmiopodcast.com. Send me your ideas for shows, guests you would like to hear from, general feedback, or just to connect. And I look forward to bringing you our next episode.